Welcome to Watershed's March podcast. This is Mark Cosgrove, Head of Programme. Last month I attended the Berlin Film Festival and I thought I'd give you a rundown of some of the highlights from this year's festival and what you might expect to see at Watershed over the forthcoming year. The Berlin Alley is one of the great world film festivals in one of the world's great cities. It is immense and diverse in scale and completely impossible to capture everything but you can get a sense of currents in world cinema from the festival's international competition, forum, panorama strands, never mind all the screenings that take place in the European film market. And it is indeed global, screening films from all over the world. One day I went from China to Afghanistan, then on to Belgium in one afternoon. The first film I managed to see was a real treat, and I have to confess I don't think I can really be counted in the way of work. I was trying to get orientated with all the information that the festival gives you when you first arrive and I noticed that there was a press show of the opening film, Shine a Light, Scorsese's film of a live concert by the Rolling Stones. While I didn't have press accreditation, I knew they often did repeat screenings 15 minutes after the official show and industry accredited sorts like myself could often get in. In parenthesis, and not one that would interest the casual listener, but the hierarchies in film festival, especially the large ones, is like a class system of its own. Someone who you are casually chatting with as an equal all of a sudden becomes an object of your ire as they swan past you into a screening, and you are left fuming anxiously wondering if you'll get in. On this occasion it was to be. I was quite surprised by the tepid critical reaction to Shine a Light, I think there is something about not allowing old rockers, who were once rebellious young rockers, to be acknowledged for the great performers that they are. It's a curious thing with the Stones, because their influences were blues singers, who the older they got, the more they seemed to be revered. Shine a Light is filmed over two nights in a small venue by Martin Scorsese. While Scorsese seems to be the director of choice for rock docs, The thing about him is that he understands the dynamic of pop music in relation to the image and he is seriously into the Stones' music, having used them in most of his soundtracks. Jagger joked at the press conference that this was the first film that Scorsese hadn't used, Street Fighting Man. The opening of the film is about the creative tensions between rock and rollers and dynamic filmmaker. They won't give him a set list because they haven't decided. He wants the set list because he has storyboarded what seems to be like the whole of the Stones' back catalogue and wants to tell the camera operators what positions to take up. As the Stones are about to take the stage, Scorsese has handed the set list. His knowledge of their music and dynamic of their performance is such that throughout the film you feel the intense energy of the Stones. At times, years drop off Jagger so that he becomes the lithe, dangerous 20-something again. Unlike some critics, I do not agree that this is just a record of the aged Stones. Shine a Light captures the reason why the Stones are indeed the greatest rock and roll band. Richards is now the electric bluesman he always wanted to be, as is shown when Buddy Guy shares the stage and the riff with them. That was an exhilarating start to a festival, as you could ask for. Following that, I went on to see Peter Greenaway's new film, Rembrandt. A surprise because I had forgotten he had made a new film, and further surprise because it starred Martin Freeman from The Office as the artist Rembrandt. What was extraordinary was that the more the film progressed, the less he looked like the funny wee guy from The Office, and the more he became Rembrandt, slightly pudgy-nosed and all. Greenaway has gone to, as one would expect, great lengths to recreate the light and the quality of the painted image. 
The film, though, is not as powerful as his 80s career, but sees Greenaway make, and he would probably grimace at the term, a more accessible film, in narrative terms at least. Films which should definitely get released in the UK and that were screened in competition are Elegy, an adaptation from Philip Roth's novel. I've always been wary of Philip Roth's novels for no other reason than a prejudiced sense that they were going to be smugly middle-aged, white and male, and follow through feeling that I wouldn't really want to hang out with these simmeringly misogynistic characters. I was uncomfortable at the beginning of the film as I felt this was entirely what was going to be delivered as we enter into the world of middle-aged New York University lecturer played by Ben Kingsley talking smugly of his sexual journey through the 60s and his current affair with new Cuban student played by Penelope Cruz. Middle-aged male wish fulfilment indeed. However, the film takes a more complex turn and holds in great tension the balance of all the characters' desires, pasts and possible futures. In fact, towards the end, as their relationships unravel, there is an absolutely brilliant scene acted almost wordless between Kingsley and Cruz which manages to evoke such depths of emotion, loss and regret from the simple act of taking a photograph. Both of them are quite brilliant in elegy. Moving on to more female wish fulfilment territory is El Pasado, starring Gail Garcia Bernal as a man caught in a series of relationships and haunted by the past of his marriage. It's directed by Brazilian director Hector Babenco, who's probably most famous for Kiss of the Spider Woman. Here he displays finely tuned, hugely enjoyable storytelling finesse, with a great central performance from Bernal, who manages to bring an authenticity and believability to his situation, which I guess is why he's such an attractive personality, as you believe that it is him, Gail Garcia Bernal, as it were, that you are watching. Continuing in the Hispanic vein, The Oxford Murders is Spanish director Albert de la Iglesia's first full-blooded English-language film. Some of you might know his earlier work, such as Day of the Beast or Axion Mutante. The Oxford Murders could mark his breakthrough to a more mainstream English-language audience. Iglesia has a great track record of wayward, hysterical, gothic films. Here he embraces with full-blooded vigour the quintessential English murder mystery set amongst the spires of Oxford. At one point I half expected Moss or Lewis to walk across frame. Iglesia, I suspect, plays with these expectations, but takes us into infinitely darker and sexier territory. It's a tight, twisting, imagine Agatha Christie in a room with P.D. James, and you kind of get in there. John Hurt brings an etched gravitas as a philosophy lecturer, and there's a jaw-dropping sequence starring British director Alex Cox which defies even David Lynch for weirdness. The Italian film Cam Chaos was a real highlight, as when it unfolded, I thought, is it going to pull it off or will it simply fall in the weight of its own contrivance? A successful businessman played by Italian actor-director Nanni Moretti tragically loses his wife in an accident. He wasn't there at the time of the accident and his nine-year-old daughter asks why he wasn't there for her. Later, on taking his daughter on her first day back at school after the accident, he says he will wait for her in the park opposite. This he does day after day after day, bringing his business world to him and building up relationships with the community around the park. The film does it with such belief, primarily radiated through Moretti's performance, that you buy into the circumstances and find yourself rooting for the emotions of the character. 
It pulls back from a saccharine sentimentality, instead building to an emotionally satisfying climax. Unfortunately, this will, I am sure, be remade by Hollywood, who will inject the saccharine sentimentality and probably cast someone like Tom Hanks. See the original before that calamity. Two films from Sweden were other highlights for me. I've admired the strength of Swedish short films for years in my capacity as creative director of Encounter Short Film Festival. Only last year, we screened Jens Jonsson's wonderful short film, Linerboard. Indeed, Jonsson's body of short films must be one of the most distinctive and talented I have come across. So it was with high anticipation that I went to see his first feature film, The King of Ping Pong. It had already picked up an award at Sundance and got great audience response from the Rotterdam Film Festival. It delivers on Jonsson's idiosyncratic visual style, telling the story of an overweight adolescent boy whose life becomes increasingly fraught. His one release, Table Tennis, is not enough to shield him from the ambiguities of his parentage and tense relationship with his brother. I enjoyed the film, but I suffered from the weight of raised expectation knowing Jonsson's earlier short films. However, I was pleased that UK colleagues in both exhibition and distribution responded warmly and enthusiastically. It does deserve to be seen and Jonsson is a talent and deserves to be promoted. Similarly, Leo by Josef Fares was a powerful experience. A leisurely opening sequence of a group of family friends celebrating the main character's 30th birthday introduces us to family and friends. As he and his girlfriend stumble happily, drunkenly home, they bump into a couple of terrifying characters and the story takes a tragically shocking course. Leo is tense filmmaking with excellent performance and script. I have severe reservations about the denouement, but up until then I was gripped in its vice-like self-assurance. I was urging all indie UK distributors to watch Leo in the hope that someone will pick it up for UK distribution. As a footnote, at the Swedish reception, I met both directors and duly complimented them on their films and discovered that they were in the same year at film school in Stockholm. One can only imagine the cinematic fireworks at that film school. Sometimes it is difficult to know how to make choices on what films to see when you're at a festival at the scale of Berlin, something in the region of 200 screenings a day of films that are so new there is no word on the street. A couple of times I took the decision based on the titles and much to my delight this paid off. First was Buddha's Collapsed Out of Shame, which I have to admit I was helped by the poster as it seemed to be set amidst the ruined Buddhas of Bamiyan. I remember seeing that on the news when the Taliban, in a final act of cultural barbarity and sacrilegious defiance, bombed the amazing statues. The film turned out to be one of the most powerful of the festival, telling on one level the moving story of a six-year-old girl who simply wants to go to school, and on another an extraordinary effective parable on the barbarity of men. Whilst the power of the film was being absorbed as the credits went by, I noticed the name McMalbaf, and it is indeed come from the Iranian McMalbaf filmmaking dynasty. Buddha collapsed out of shame and went on to win one of the awards at the festival. The other was Mad Detective, a combination of intriguing B-movie title and country of origin, China, had me hooked. And what a treat and brilliantly original take on the detective genre it turned out to be. It features a cop who can see the personality, or in cases, personalities of people and discover the killer through some kind of psychic power. However, he is seriously mad, 
having conversations with his non-existent girlfriend, slicing off his own ear to give to his chief as a retirement present. The film works in its own sublime madness and reaches a genre-satisfying climax with a glorious nod to the famous mirror scene in Orson Welles' Lady from Shanghai. Completely and utterly brilliant. Finally, two documentaries reflected and reminded of great cultural personalities, Hunter S. Thompson and Derek Jarman, clearly very different in their personas and art, but illuminating to be brought back face-to-face as it were with their work and lives. The core of Derek is an interview with Jarman in his Dungeness cottage, where he expansively, articulately reflects on his life, work and art. Interspersed with sequences from his films, it leaves you with the desire to see his work again in the cinema and be reminded of the phenomenal impact that Jarman had in the 80s. I know the documentary and some of his work was screened on More 4, but they deserve to be available in cinemas or similarly available in DVD, which as I write there note, the director of the documentary Isaac Julian has created a show which is currently on at the Serpentine where Derek is also screening, and which hints at what is available. Next year is 15 years since his death. Let the campaign commence to get his films back in the cinema so that we can honour at the feet of St Derek. For more information about those films that were on at Berlin Film Festival, go to berlinale.de. Until next month.